to 11, I'll be reading from the New International Version. Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. For it is we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by his spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reasons for such confidence. If someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Thanks, Joel. Good morning, church. Uh, before we come to uh, these most holy scriptures and hear from God, uh, let us pray together. Father, it is indeed our prayer this morning that we know you. We ask this morning that as we peer into the words of eternal life, that Christ would be held high in our midst and that we would really know him. We ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Church, as you may have noticed this morning, we have uh, a few really exciting things that are happening in our midst. Uh, first, we have welcomed new members into our church, which is always such a wonderful and encouraging thing to do, as we are watching Christ build his church right in front of our very eyes, just like he said he would. Second, and a little later on, uh, we will be partaking in the most public expression of Christ with his church by coming to his table through the means in which he has given us uh, to do so, namely by participating in the Lord's Supper. But now, third, uh, we're going to hear from God through his word to us, uh, which is really exciting because not only are we seeing and partaking in Christ's work this morning, uh, but we are also going to hear about his work, that he has done, that he is doing, and that he will continue to do for us, his people, through one of the most encouraging passages that we just so happen to be looking at this morning. And for these purposes, we'll be mainly concentrating our efforts on verses 8 through to 11. 
However, before uh, we really hone in on verses 8 through to 11, I just want to briefly make a few comments here uh, on the rest of the passage to help us understand what's going on. First of all, Paul says in verse 1 that he is happy to be repeating and speaking to his friends again about a theme that has been playing out all throughout the letter to the Philippians. And that is the theme of rejoicing. I mean, if we just think about our time in this series so far and how the theme of joy has come up time and time again, well, it makes perfect sense for Paul to be saying to his friends that I'm happy to be talking to you about this again. Because notice it, he says, it is a safeguard. For example, in chapter 1, verse 4, Paul explained to his friends that he had prayed with joy because of their partnership in the gospel. Now, remember where Paul was writing this from when he said that. He he was writing from prison. And so, in a very real way, Paul was saying that though he is in chains, though he was stuck in Rome, and though he couldn't get to his friends in Philippi, well, he still had great joy for them because he knew that they had Christ. Or better yet, he knew that Christ had them. So you might say that looking to Christ in that situation was a safeguard for Paul. Again, in chapter 1, verse 18, he repeats this very theme of rejoicing under persecution because even though he was experiencing preachers out there who were against him, Paul took great joy in the fact that Christ was still being preached about. Again, the gospel, seeing that in the situation, that was a safeguard for him. In chapter 2, verses 17 through to 18, Paul said that even though the work of the gospel was difficult, even though it was self-sacrificial because it was for the cause of Christ and his church on this earth, though it was hard, though it was sacrificial, he knew God's kingdom was being advanced, that the gospel was being proclaimed. Once again, Paul looked to the gospel. He rejoiced in the Lord because it was a safeguard for him. Time and time again, Paul says, rejoice. Rejoice, not just for the sake of it, but rejoice because our joy doesn't come from our circumstances, but in the good news of Jesus Christ. That's why he says, rejoice in what? Rejoice in the Lord. And that's what Paul is saying here. He's saying it's as we look to Christ and rejoice in him, no matter our circumstance, well, that's a safeguard for us from being discouraged or falling away. To put it simply, brothers and sisters, we rejoice not because of the what-ifs in life, but the what-is in Christ. So that's the first thing we need to understand here. Paul is again telling the church that we are to rejoice in the Lord, to take joy in the gospel, because our joy doesn't come from our circumstances, but from the good news of Jesus Christ. And it's as we look to him that we will be kept safe. However, there is one thing that kills our rejoicing in the gospel, and that's taking our focus, our confidence from Jesus alone 
and adding in our own fleshly works. Jesus plus something else kind of thing. That's the second thing we need to understand here, which was actually a problem for the Philippian church. It was something that they faced. False teachers had come out to them and they had said, you need to do more to be accepted by God than faith alone in Christ. That's what we see in verse 2. Paul warns them, watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, the mutilators of the flesh. Who were these evildoers? Well, they're called Judaizers. And they were a sort of denomination within the early church that went around teaching the churches that you had to be circumcised and come under the law of Israel before you could be accepted by Israel's Messiah. Nonsense, says Paul. To trust in your own own works rather than Christ alone for salvation as he's been offered to us in the gospel, that is to totally go wrong, as he alludes to here in verse 3. In other words, all the law and its ceremonies were pointing one way, and that was to the perfect one sent on our behalf, Jesus Christ. So to look back at the old way of doing things with all the types and shadows and ceremonies to put the confidence in the flesh, well, that's to totally miss the good news, the point of the good news of Jesus Christ, which in turn will steal your joy in the Lord. Then third, Paul kind of gives his resume to say if anyone could be confident in the flesh, if anyone could take joy in their works, well, it's me in verses 4 through to 6. But notice verse 7. He says, but whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. In other words, though Paul had every right to be confident in the flesh, to have joy in his works, well, he knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that none of it was going to justify him before the living God. So that's a bit of a context as to what we really want to hone in on today. Paul commands the church to rejoice in the Lord because it's our safeguard. He warns the church that taking our eyes off Jesus and putting our confidence in the flesh will kill our joy. Then he edifies the church by telling us that he had every right to see himself as fully right in the eyes of God, but that he has left it all behind because he has found the truth of the gospel worth giving everything up for, which he then starts to detail for us in verses 8 through to 11. I briefly pointed this out before. Paul has said, it's as we take our eyes off our circumstances and put them on Jesus, that we'll have great joy in the good news of Jesus. And all of that is good and true. But what does that mean? What does it actually mean to know the Lord in such a way that we will rejoice in him? that's what Paul directs our attention to this morning. He wants to show us why we, as God's blood-purchased people, have so much to rejoice about in the good news of Jesus Christ by modelling the Christian life for us. If you have your Bibles with you this morning, Paul says we rejoice because 
we know Jesus Christ as our Lord. He says, what's more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. That's worth pointing out here. Uh, what Paul is saying is actually an incredibly unique phrase. What I mean by that is you'll be pretty hard-pressed to find Paul using the phrase, knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, in such a way that he is using it here. And I point that out because what he's really saying is, I think my entire past is rubbish because I now have a personal relationship with Jesus. That's essentially what Paul's saying here. He's saying that there is now a personableness to his relationship with Jesus because, and notice the language here, Paul says he knows Jesus as my Lord, as as my Lord. In other words, Paul had discovered the difference between the abstract and the personal. He knows that Jesus is his and that he belongs to Jesus. How did that happen? Well, uh, we only need to look to the 10th chapter of the gospel according to John. And we see an incredibly personal scene between Jesus and his disciples. And and Jesus is explaining to them the difference between himself and the robbers and the hirelings. And there we see Jesus speak in such a personal way where he says, my sheep hear my voice. They know my voice and they follow me. Hear that? Jesus says, when they hear my voice, they follow me. And just so there's no confusion as to what that looks like, we're told by Luke in the book of Acts that when Paul, who once went by the name of Rabbi Saul, that when he was on the way to kill Christians, that the Lord Jesus himself appeared to him. And Saul, being knocked off his donkey, he hears the Lord Jesus speaking to him. Does anyone remember Rabbi Saul's first words to Jesus? Who are you, Lord? Who are you, Lord? Uh, That's right, the, the first words out of Saul's mouth was an expression that Jesus is Lord. And the first thing that we see him do is he seeks to obey him. That's why we read about people who were baptised in the book of Acts and in 1 Corinthians, uh, how the adults, at least, would confess Jesus is Lord. And that's something that the church has always practised. It's something that we practise here today. Because Christians know Jesus is Lord. And we know that we want the Lord to direct us in a personal way. We want him involved in our lives. So church, we might ask, how do we express the Lordship of Christ in our lives? Well, we express the Lordship of Christ as we not only listen to his voice. And this is important but we do what he says. That's how we really know that we have come to know Jesus as Lord, because we hear what he says and we obey. Where do we hear the voice of Jesus? Well, it's not 
in our own imaginations and fantasies. We hear the voice of the Lord in the Bible. That's right, Jesus speaks to us by his word, which has been breathed out by the living God. And we're told in the book of Hebrews that the word is alive and active. And as his followers, as those who really trust in the Lord, we hear his voice speaking to us in the scriptures. And therefore, we don't dare cut or paste, ignore, twist uh, what the Lord has to say. No, when he speaks to us in his word, we listen and obey. We trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus. We listen to when there are tender promises made to us. And we obey when he commands us to do something. Because we know it is the voice of the Lord speaking to us, to his people, his sheep. And that's what Paul is expressing here as a Christian, as a model for all of us. Christians know Jesus as our Lord personally because we listen and obey. So that's first. Christians rejoice because we've come to know Jesus as our Lord. Second, we read in the rest of verse 8, we rejoice because we have gained Christ. Paul says, for whose sake I've lost all things, I consider them garbage, that I may gain Christ. Every Christian that I've met, every true born-again person that I've ever come across expresses a couple of things in common. First, that everything they had before they were a Christian, no matter what it was, is nothing compared to what they now have in Christ. And they wouldn't trade it for the world. The second thing they express is that though they may have had nice and good things in the past, even if they still have them, well, the common factor is they don't look to those things to define them anymore. No, since they've found Christ, or better yet, since they know they have been found by Christ, they have found that they have become more and more satisfied in Jesus and that nothing could be more desired in this life than coming to know him more and more and more. What they're really saying is what Paul is expressing here. Christians count all things as loss and Christ as gain because they know that having Christ is better than anything that this world has to offer. I mean, that's what Paul has already expressed when talking to his friends at Philippi in verses 4 through to 6. He was essentially saying, I, I had it all in this world when it came to religious prestige and honour in society, but I count it all as rubbish now that I've found Christ. And that might seem pretty abstract to many of us because we don't live in a society where religious leaders are held in high esteem. In fact, just the opposite. But one story that we find in the gospel according to Mark does hit a little closer to home. And that's the story of the rich young ruler who, like many of us in Australian society, looked to his property portfolio and pennies in his pocket 
for self-worth. And we read that he wanted to follow Jesus, and, and Jesus flings the door open for him to do so. But the rich young ruler found that he couldn't enter because he clung to the anchor of his money in such a way that he couldn't let go, even if it was going to drown him. All that to say, he was a man that didn't see Jesus as all there was to gain in this life. So he clung to the rubbish of this world, which would come to nothing anyway. Now, what Paul is saying to us here is he's, he's come to realize all those things that he thought to find him and was worth living for, well, it, it's crumbled in comparison to knowing Christ. So much so that he actually now looks at all of that stuff as utter rubbish compared to the gain that he has in Christ. He's saying all that stuff that helped puff my chest out and, and talk the loudest in the room. Well, I've come to see it for what it is. It, it's rubbish. It reeked, and, and I want nothing to do with it. So like anyone who has rubbish in the house, he found it easy to just throw it in the bin without a second thought because it didn't define him. It didn't fill the empty, gaping hole that was created in his heart. Is that you today? Is that you? Are you one of those people that has everything in the world all that it has to offer, but still feel completely empty at the end of the day. That was my story. That was my journey to the cross. I had everything that the world had to offer, money, great relationships, wonderful opportunities, but I felt completely empty, which in hindsight was the Lord, by his spirit, convicting me that I had nothing apart from Christ. Nothing. All Christians know that gaining Jesus is better than anything this world has to offer. Have you come to realize that yet? Because if you haven't, you're not here by mistake this morning. The door has been flung open to you. Will you let go of the anchor that will drown you anyway? So first, Christians rejoice because we know Jesus as our Lord personally. Second, we rejoice because we have gained Christ. Third, we rejoice because we are found in Christ. Paul says in verse 9, I want to be found in Christ, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. It's incredibly interesting what Paul is doing here, church, because he's gone from looking to his own works to looking to Christ, and that's what he's drawing out for us here this morning. There is a righteousness that one must have in order to be accepted by God. But this is the amazing thing. This righteousness doesn't come from us and our works, but is given to us by God. And it is grasped by faith alone. And church, that's always been the story of the Bible. There is a righteousness from God 
that is gifted to his people by faith. You might remember uh, just after our first parents, Adam and Eve, had rebelled against God in the Garden of Eden, uh, that God came to them, but what did they do? They hid themselves and they covered themselves by making a garment of leaves. And we read that they hid themselves because they knew they were naked, because they had done wrong, that they had broken the one law that God had given them to do. However, as you read on, there's this little detail in that narrative that if you blink, you'll miss it. We read that essentially God didn't accept what they had clothed themselves in, what they had worked for themselves. So he made a garment of skins for their shame to be covered. Now again, it's such a small detail, yet it contains such a monumental truth. And that's that our own working for right standing before God will never be accepted by him. And so we might try to cover ourselves in all our good works and worldly accolades. However, at the end of the day, our creator sees right through it. And so the apostle Paul, in a roundabout way, is saying that there is a way to not be found especially on that last day, with a a little fig leaf covering yourselves, saying, "I, I tried my hardest to be a good person. I tried to keep the Ten Commandments. I helped the poor. I got baptized. Won't you accept me? Now, every Christian knows that our own works are like offering a king dirty rags to impress him. And that's just unacceptable as we know that nothing we do comes anywhere near the standard of God. And so what Paul is saying is that we don't need to be worried about being found naked because we're in fact clothed in something that is perfect. We are clothed in the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. How does it come about? How do we put on the garment of the righteousness of the perfect one? Well, it's not by our own doing, but by simply reaching out in the faith that we have been given. We put our faith in Christ alone. So first, Christians rejoice because we know Jesus as our Lord. Second, we rejoice because we have gained Christ. Third, we rejoice because we are found in him. Fourth, We rejoice because we have the very Spirit of God working in us. We see this in verses 10 through to 11. Paul says, I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings. Becoming like him in his death and so somehow attaining to the resurrection of the dead. In other words, Paul is saying that he wants to know the power of of Jesus, the work of the living God in him now. He wants to see God changing him from the inside out so that he will become more like Jesus on this side of eternity. To put it plainly, Paul is talking about wanting to experience the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit in his very life. 
And for every Christian, we rejoice because we have the deep desire for the Spirit's work in us. Because before, when we were dead in trespasses and sin with a death sentence hanging over our heads, well, we had no desire to know Christ intimately and to feel the work of the Spirit in our lives. But now, because we are a new creation, born again and being shaped and formed into the image of Jesus by the work of God, we rejoice. We rejoice that the work of God is really meeting our deepest desires to be more and more like Jesus. Brother, sister, the fact that we don't just want to be forgiven, but to see the power of sin broken in our lives, well, we rejoice because that work will be met by the Spirit in our lives and ultimately on that day of resurrection. We rejoice in that. And so as we prepare our hearts for the table this morning to meet with Jesus through the Spirit, let us rejoice in the good news of Jesus Christ. We can do that because of what Paul has shown us here this morning. As Christians, as God's blood-purchased people, we have so much to celebrate and rejoice in the gospel because we know Christ as our Lord, because we have gained Christ, because we are found in Christ, and because we have the work of the Spirit in each and every one of us. All these things we rejoice in, church, and they are a safeguard to us in every and every circumstance, any and every circumstance. I just want to ask a couple of questions of you this morning uh, before we come to the Lord's table. Do you know Jesus? Lovely. Do you know him as your Lord? Are you hearing his word and trusting what he says and expressing that by obeying what he says? Because if not, today is the day to let go of the anchor and grasp onto Christ. The door through the gospel is really being flung open. The narrow way is before you. All you have to do is enter it by the gate, being Jesus. I might also ask, are you still trusting in the things of this world over and against everything that has been offered to you in the gospel? Like Paul, are you looking to your religious prestige, maybe to your baptism or your good works for your acceptability before God? Have you come to see that Jesus is your everything? Well, might I say to you this morning, today is the day to see those things for what they are, to turn to Christ and to trust in him. And I just want to say to everyone of you this morning, to my brothers and sisters who have put your trust in Christ and, and know something of the realities that have been spoken about this morning. We will not walk in these things perfectly. We won't walk in these things perfectly on this side of eternity. But this is our encouragement. The table that has been set before us this morning is a place of strengthening and assurance of the wonderful things 
that have been freely given to us by God in the Lord Jesus Christ. So dear one, if you see your sin for what it is, if you see Christ for who he is, and yet you look at your life and you see where you fall so far short, then this is actually the place to be this morning, the place to come and meet with the risen Lord through the Holy Spirit by his invitation to be strengthened and satisfied in him. I'm going to ask the team to uh, come and lead us in a song in reflection to the words that we've heard this morning. Uh, But as they do that, uh, let me just quickly pray uh, before we come to the table. Would you pray with me? Father, we are so thankful that you are the one who does the work in us. That by your spirit, you are transforming us more and more to be like our Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, you know everybody's situation in here. You know where we are, the weeks we've had. You know past, present and future. I would ask, Lord, that we would be strengthened as we meet with you this morning. That that we would be encouraged and transformed. For the sake of Christ and for your glory alone, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, team.